Welcome to the ACOP Advocacy Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Hi, and welcome to the ACOPDO.FM Advocacy Podcast. I'm Stephen Legault, ACOFP's Director of Knowledge, Learning, and Assessment. I'm glad to be joined by longtime ACOFP member and volunteer, Dr. Jonathan Torres. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Definitely. And we're definitely excited for you uh, to, to be on. And for those of uh, those listening who don't know you, um, you know, I'll give a brief background here. You lead up both the Osteopathic Education Committee as chair, and you're the leader of the Cortex Formative Exam Workgroup here at ACOFP. Uh, you're also a fellow of both ACOFP and AAO, and the osteopathic program director of the Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Program at the Atlantic Health System in New Jersey. Uh, and of course, we're having you on the podcast today because you're taking your advocacy to the next level and running for elected office. So tell me, did I miss anything in your intro? Well, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, yeah, I've been fortunate to be a longtime member of ACOFP, uh, been a member for many years, and I really benefited a lot from a lot of the mentorship and working with uh, leaders in the committees and leaders of the organization overall. Uh, I currently am kind of taking a bit of a path less chosen by physicians, and, and I'm running for elected office, like you mentioned. So here in the state of New Jersey this year, the entire legislature is up. Uh, so I'm actually running for one of the state legislature seats. There's 120 seats total, 80 in the assembly that I'm running for, and 40 in the state Senate. Uh, so it's it's been a bit of a, a uh, challenge juggling between full-time medical practice and, and resident education and also running and, and making those connections and, and talking to uh, voters and constituents. I bet, I bet, but that's uh, awesome, awesome stuff. And uh, you know, uh, again, thank you for for everything you've done for ACOP, and we're we're excited for for uh, the future that the things hold for you there. All right, so I thought I'd kind of start with a, a broad question, and um, and could you know, could you start by defining you know what advocacy in the context of healthcare and health policy means to you? So I, I think in in framing that question, there's a lot of different ways that it, it can kind of be answered. Uh, healthcare advocacy. In, in broad sense, I think, is, is about advocating for our patients, um, for our colleagues, uh, for issues that pertain to healthcare. Uh, but it can be very narrow as well. Uh, as I've been on this journey, I've really appreciated a lot more strongly those connections between what we've considered traditional healthcare problems like diabetes, obesity, hypertension, heart disease, and a lot of those social uh, determinants of health uh, and how people's uh, financial means, their access to healthy food, what kind of jobs or how many jobs they're actually carrying to be able to provide for their families can negatively impact their health. And it can limit a lot of the options that they have. Uh, and so when I think of advocacy, on the one hand, it's about making resources available to treat those chronic diseases, uh, trying to make sure that they can get the medication they need, that they can see the specialist that they require. Um, but also looking at some of those other softer social issues that really can negatively impact uh, their health as well. Uh, and trying to identify stakeholders and resources, working with your employer or health system or a medical school to find a way to put them in connection so that we can address that as well. Uh, a lot of them 
go over a long period of time. Uh, and so it sometimes takes a little stamina uh, to stay on track. But it's, uh, I think, really, really very broad in terms of how we're, we're looking to, to define advocating for healthcare. Um, there's also getting behind policies that are actually being proposed um, and, and working behind them to try and help either steer them or encourage people to support it. So there's a lot of ways that we can advocate for healthcare, really at every level, from an individual to an association to a, a national organization. Excellent. And you mentioned just now a, a few different things that um, sound like they, they might have inspired you, but was there, was there anything else that inspired you to become involved in, in advocacy and policy work? Well, as a physician, it was something I never considered. Now, I went through medical school with that dream. I'm going to get into medicine. I'm going to take care of patients, and that's going to be it. Uh, but the more I took care of patients, I wound up continually running into the same barriers. You know, I prescribe a medication and then wind up spending several hours writing and on peer-to-peer -peer calls, appealing decisions, trying to get them the medication that they need. And several weeks or even months go by before they get the care that they require. Uh, and while I do that as a physician, I started to think that there has to be a better way instead of me toiling away for hours that, frankly, we're not compensated to do, to take care of my patients the way they deserve to be taken care of, working to pursue legislation that helps streamline that process and makes it easier for them to get the care that they need for us to make informed decisions about what medications or treatments are affordable for them based on their insurance, based on their situation, uh, just made sense a lot more than just kind of banging my head against a wall and continuing that vicious cycle that I think leads to so much burnout amongst the profession where we're constantly spending time fighting a system that seems hell-bent to deny care to the patients we're trying to treat. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. And, you know, and, and you mentioned one of your, your big stakeholders, right, are, are the patients. Um, and advocacy is, is one of those things that often involves collaboration with various stakeholders. So kind of to the, the point we were just talking about, like, how do you navigate working with different groups or individuals? And, and some of those might actually have differing opinions or goals. So how do you how do you try to build that consensus? That's a great point. Uh, you know, we don't wind up in our current situation without there being some intention behind bringing us here, uh, whether that's profits for some stakeholders or or it's just an inadequacy or a feeling that there's no power for others. And so uh, working in this uh, area, what I have found the most useful is honestly applying the skills that I learned in my family medicine residency training, um, which is to listen really closely you know, pay attention, uh, realizing that having that conversation and blurting out and yelling, hey, this is what you have to do to fix this problem is not potentially the best way for us to solve it. And that if we can listen to those different stakeholders, you know, certainly who agree with us, but even those who don't, so we can get a better sense of where our differences exactly lie, then we can kind of move forward from there. And I think a lot of a lot about when I take care of patients who who have diabetes that are not compliant, right? I can yell at them and tell them, why don't you take your medication? You have to take your medication. You're going to have dialysis. You're going to need, you have a heart attack. You're going to need, you know, but at the end of the day, 
taking that step back, like I think all of us try our best to do and to listen to, well, what are the barriers? What are the problems that are keeping you from doing this thing that I think we both agree would be good, but we need to find a way to move forward together. Um, and, and even for those who would be in opposition, I think that winds up being a little disarming because now at least you're engaging them in the conversation and it's not so adversarial so much as trying to find that common ground that you can move forward from. Definitely. And, and kind of keeping on that, that, uh, that piece with, with the, the patients, so, you know, health policies of, oftentimes have, you know, very far reaching impacts on, on uh, multiple or different communities. So how do you ensure the voices of the patients and, and healthcare providers are effectively represented in those discussions? Well, that's a great question. Um, a lot of it, I think, comes down to intention and planning. Um, on the one hand, there's the pathway that I'm trying to pursue of trying to have a healthcare actually in the room where it happens, where those decisions are being discussed and made. Um, but on another level, it's trying to make sure that physicians and, and, and the people that are providing care have an avenue to actually communicate that either directly to those representatives or to an association that they've joined that can speak on their behalf, uh, or even talking to their patients and informing them of how they can get engaged. Um, a lot of our patients are, are wildly invested in their health and pretty frustrated about where they are, and they can be really powerful um, uh, allies in trying to actually shape uh, some of the healthcare reform that I think we all uh, would like to see. Excellent. And then, you know, thinking about um, just, you know, some of the inequities and the health disparities that, that exist in healthcare and, and what significant challenges those pose, how, how can effective advocacy contribute to reducing them and uh, promoting more equitable access to healthcare? Well, on the on the one hand, there's efforts to try and, and propose some kind of a solution that I, I think us as physicians confronting the problem daily can seem pretty blaring. Uh, but for those people who are making these decisions, they don't necessarily have a sense of what the consequences are, of, of what the problem is. And so our role in that situation is trying to make sure that we're able to communicate in a way that they can take away what we're hoping that they will you know, to make sure that they understand these are the problems that are going on. These are the consequences of what have happened because of these policies. And in, in a, a real way, as I try to, or not I try, but I have found that trying to emphasize my opinion of why this is a problem is not nearly as powerful as trying to emphasize the experiences that my patients have had. Um, that human experience of sharing, look, I have a patient, Jimmy, and Jimmy has had trouble getting this medication. Jimmy has a 50-50 chance of having a heart attack, and I really need to get him Jardiance, and they're saying no. And by saying no, they're, they're flipping the coin on Jimmy. You know, we really need to help Jimmy so that Jimmy doesn't have a heart attack. He doesn't die. He doesn't have all of those consequences. And he doesn't burden our system with all this unnecessary costs and expense because we didn't treat it in the first place. Um, and finding those examples and passing them on is, is one of the most effective ways, I think, when we're trying to advocate for something. If you think about a political speech, whether it's a state of the union by pretty much 
any president from either side of the aisle, they're usually littered with examples of individual people. And you'll see that same thing repeated for congressmen and senators and assembly people is, is that human connection is so powerful. Uh, and so making sure that as physicians who actually have that human connection, that we're sharing that in a way that's very focused um, and, and following it up with a clear, and so then we should do this. <laughs> so you wanna have that human conversation and then also dovetail into a very simple, this is why we should do X. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to understand all of our jargon. They're not going to understand in the weeds, but trying to keep it very focused uh, is, is a very effective way for us to be able to get that point across uh, and, and hopefully be able to advocate successfully for, for real change. And, and on that point of change, so policies in general, either policies that exist or policies that are proposed, oftentimes it, it takes a long time to, to make change. So how do you maintain that momentum and that motivation uh, you know, among advocates when progress seems slow or things aren't moving? That's a great question. Um, change, I think, almost anywhere takes a while. Um, whether it's a, a med school curriculum, it's an office process, or, or certainly with legislation. Uh, and part of it is, I think, about keeping our eye focused and, and our attention focused on why we're doing this. Uh, the other part is about getting a team. You know, it's easy for us to be distracted. As physicians, we're pulled in a lot of different directions. We're pulled to deliver patient care. We're pulled based on satisfaction. We're pulled on productivity. We have our family lives. There's a lot of things that are competing for our attention. And so by joining together with other people, uh, that's one way that we can kind of maintain that momentum going forwards. And there's a lot of opportunities for that that, that bring physicians together. Um, there's a, a national organization like ACOFP or the AOA. There's state societies, whether it's the AOA society or your state ACOFP. There are specialty societies. There's a lot of, of organizations that put together resources, whether it's financial or it's having a legislative rep to actually help inform how you can be effective and put that infrastructure in so that you're not doing it all by yourself you actually have a team and, and that team is rowing in the same direction. So if you need to take a break because one of those competing things needs attention, uh, that project still moves forward. The other thing is planning for interval updates, making sure people understand where we are and especially what is that next goalpost that we're aiming for and how are we gonna know when we get there? Uh, so that we can celebrate those small victories on the pathway to that ultimate legislation. So, and kind of goes nicely in the, in the next uh, area I wanted to go was was around um, you know medicine's evidence based and uh, and that kind of thing. So, so what is evidence and research in your experience? How does that that play in shaping health policy decisions? And how can advocates ensure that policies are informed by the best available evidence? So that's, that's, again, I think a really important challenge that physicians face. Uh, you know, we are completely trained from the second we enter medical school that our job in taking care of our patients is to accumulate information 
whether that is articles and guidelines, that is lab results and diagnostic studies, and take all of this information and put it together into something that, that makes sense to us who have spent years learning how to understand all of those things. But our legislators don't have that. You know, our legislators do not have the ability to, you know, seamlessly understand all of those things. And so one thing is making sure that when we do have evidence, uh, we're breaking it down in a way that is easy to understand, hopefully easy to communicate in a short period of time. Um, frankly, if they want more information, you can give them the reference. <laughs> or better yet, schedule a time to go sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one, <laughs> bring some friends, and then you can really try and, and mold and shape that relationship. But just that sound bite of, you know what? I, I think this is really important. They studied this looking at these kids out in Minnesota, and they found that if we wound up supplementing, you know, fruit and everybody had it for free, then they actually all lost weight by an average of seven pounds. You don't have to go into super depth, and it doesn't have to be something massive. If you think of, again, like those catchy sound bites that you'll see on the news, it's only a brief little shot of information. And you really have to read that whole article to capture all of the information there. But trying to summarize it in a way that is easy to understand, most importantly, easy to remember. Um, and if you get an opportunity to then build on that to have a deeper conversation, then, then that's definitely great. But if you give them something that they're able to then take and use when they're having conversations, that's going to be something that's going to come up over and over and actually extend that contact you had with that one individual. Because maybe they'll talk about Jimmy when they're in that committee meeting. Or maybe Jimmy will come up on the floor. <laughs> or he'll come up on the State of the Union. Because Jimmy's story is so compelling. Um, and that's where I think we can have a real impact. Is that all of us have thousands of Jimmys. <laughs> it's just taking them and 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 presenting them in a way that people can take that with them and, and use it to shape what that advocacy and, and what that legislation looks like. And hopefully it'll frame really well the policy you're hoping to advance. Awesome. That sounds like a good way to kind of help uh, break down the complexity of a, a policy issue and, and make it a way, you know, something so everybody can kind of relate to. Sounds like mm -hmm. so. Excellent. Um, so kind of looking in the future, um, you know, what emerging healthcare issues, you know, are, do you believe are going to require increased advocacy or just more attention from, 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 from these, these groups in the future? Well, I can tell you the, the things that I think are most important and, and things that wind up having made it their way into my campaign are, are going to be things that really try and restore some power to patients. You know, when we look at healthcare now, there's a lot of talk about patients being healthcare consumers. Um, and well, if they didn't want to spend that much, then they should have gone somewhere else. Uh, and, and trying to recognize that currently, there are a lot of people who don't know what the cost of things are. So if we're trying to look at how do we reduce our overall spending, how do we improve efficiency? 
right? So not just reduce spending by cutting out vital services, but reducing spending by cutting out inadequate services or trying to streamline the ones that are effective. Uh, and, and a lot of that, I think, comes to actually providing information. Here in the state of New Jersey, you know, we have to disclose how much we're going to charge a patient. But as physicians, I think all of us probably recognize that how much we charge a patient who has insurance is somewhat irrelevant. I might charge $500 for a service, but their insurance is going to decide whether their patient is going to be responsible for $5 or $50 or $250. And as a provider, I have no way to predict that. And a lot of times the patient has no way of predicting that. And so to expect us to deliver care that's cheaper without telling us what the price tag is, or that patients are gonna choose care that's cheaper without knowing the price tag is really short-sighted. And so I think efforts that are gonna to move towards transparency, an idea that I have that I would love to see come to fruition is, is one, that patients on their cell phone would have a, an Aetna or United Healthcare app. And I could tell them, you have diabetes, I think you need Jardiance. And no, I haven't been paid by Jardiance, even though I know that's the second time I brought it up. But, you know, I can look up, or they can look up on their phone Jardiance, and it will tell them Jardiance is out of network or it's tier three. Your out of pocket cost will be $87. Or you can choose Barsiga instead. Farsiga will be $23. Invacana will be $4. So now that patient and me in the room with them can have an informed discussion about, is there really a value of you paying more money out of pocket to get more of a benefit? Or should we choose something that's actually going to make more dollar sense for you? preserve that money and resource so that you can address other issues, whether that's putting food on the table, paying the rent, keeping the lights on, or paying for other medications. Um, and, and that is, I think, a very common sense way that you can have that transparency that's very actionable so that now we reduce costs. We can make that decision the day of care. So I'm not spending hours over the following weeks doing free work, trying to get prior authorizations approved, filing appeals, making peer-to-peers. The patients aren't frustrated because they don't have any medicine yet because this process is still ongoing. Their diabetes is still wildly out of control um, and they're still exposed to risk. So Painting that in a way that I think humanizes it and makes sense is going to be really important. Um, other issues are going to be, I think, a little harder to define. AI is going to shape healthcare. Uh, we had a great speech out at the House of Delegates in July talking about it. And I don't think we fully understand exactly how it's going to shape healthcare, uh, but I think there are a lot of opportunities for it to have a negative effect and ways that it could have a positive effect, that it could streamline some of our conversation, some of our, our inbox and our EMR experiences so that we can sort out the really urgent issues that need to be addressed now and separate that and prioritize it over something that can wait till later um, so that the patient with chest pain gets called right away <laughs> and the refill for Tylenol 
can wait. Uh, so finding ways to, to do that, I think, are, are going to be really, really important. And I think patients are becoming more savvy, and we're going to see more of a push for them to have more power in making those decisions, uh, especially when, when some of the costs don't make sense and or when they're doing their own research. And they're coming up with, you know, this expectation. I'm sure we've all had those patients come in and say, Doc, I need X drug. I saw a commercial and it's, I'm all about it. I think that's me. Um, and we have to spend a lot of time having conversations with them, but they know, hey, this is what I want. Um, a lot of times we might be able to talk them out of it if it's not a good fit for them. Uh, but dealing with patients who are increasingly savvy and educated about their health uh, and, and the role of them having ways to monitor it themselves from lab tests they can order on their own to a lot of these uh, home tests that you can get for your genetic profile. You can go and you can get your, your continuous glucose monitor, your home BP monitor. Everything can be synced to have that information collection. And how do we, as physicians, leverage that to make decisions? Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's exciting, but I think we have to be purposeful in thinking about how we should best implement that to take care of our patients. You know, I, I had a, a physician the other day say that uh, Dr. Google is getting replaced with Dr. ChatGPT. So, <laughs> yeah, and and you know, it's it's funny because I, I I tell my residents that they actually did a study comparing how effective, you know, symptom trackers were. You know, of hey, if I plug this into WebMD, how close is it to being accurate to what a physician would say? And and unsurprisingly, physicians did better. Um, so thankfully. <laughs> I still have job security. Um, but I think, you know, carving out that spot, you know, with AI and GPT is is really, it's only as good as the input. And as physicians, our role is is shaping that input. When a patient comes in and says they have a cough and I ask them, you know, a question, how they answer that question. It could be, you know, whether they break eye contact, their inflection, a pause, a glance at somebody who's there, a spouse, a parent, a child, can tell me, well, there's more here versus, you know, in AI where it's just going to be a yes or a no. And, and I think that that human touch is always going to be better than a one or a zero. But it's finding ways for us to frame that uh, in a way that that helps us deliver better care and, and take care of our patients. Well, and then... My, my, my kind of final question for you, and, and we touched on this a little bit, but I, any other nuggets you want to share on, on this topic here, but you know, what are some practical ways that anyone at any point in their career can get involved uh, and advocate on behalf of the profession? So that is a great question. Uh, and, and it's one that I struggled with, and, and obviously I took a path less taken, but Right now, there is such a tremendous need for, for physicians at every level to really be advocating for their patients. Um, we've seen over the last two decades, we've seen national legislation that targets healthcare. We've seen numerous state legislations that target healthcare, whether that's to expand it or restrict it. Uh, it has a lasting and significant impact. Uh, and, and there's a lot of need for us to, to advocate for our patients. Uh, so number one is, is trying to make sure that we're not compromising the care we provide because of the, the systems that are in the way. 
uh, always trying to maintain that I'm going to do the best I can for my patient. Uh, and, and we know that that helps us continue to get uh, value from what we do, avoid moral injury and burnout, uh, and and do what I think all of us signed up to do, which is to, to take care of patients to the best of our abilities. But when that is not enough, I think that's where advocacy really starts to kind of pick up steam. Uh, I've learned a lot over the last year and a half through the process of, of kind of getting into the political machine and running a campaign and talking to people and and meeting with representatives and seeing how things are solved on a political level. Uh, and it's things that I never knew as a physician. So I have had in the last several weeks, you know, patients who come in and tell me that they have a problem. You know, there's a medical problem and it's exasperated because of some social issue and they just don't know who to fix it. Right. They're like, I, I have a child who's disabled and I need this, but I don't know how to get it. Um, and what I had learned and, and try to share as much as I can is that that is the role that elected officials are really poised to help with. Um, so we, as their physicians, can certainly reach out and advocate for them. We can write a letter to their insurance. Um, I would argue we can write a letter to the legislators that represent them. Um, because legislators are elected, they're really beholden to that patient. If it's the state assemblyman or the state senator or their congressperson, they want that vote. They don't want them to tell them, hey, I called out to this you know, representative and they didn't do anything for me because that's going to make people not want to vote for them. So they are incentivized to do something. Uh, and so frequently what I will do is I will look at where they live and I'll search who are your representatives and I'll give them a list. Here are your two assembly people. Here's your state senator. Here's your congressperson. Call their office. I know that as physicians, we get some of those messages from OPAC to send emails to our officials, and, and that's that's helpful. And I encourage all of you to do that when you can. But that human connection of an actual voice on the other end of that phone conveys so much more than than typewritten, you know, letters. And so having them give them a call and and have a conversation, tell them this is my problem. And the same way I had suggested earlier that we can amplify a problem by saying, look, I have 10 patients who've had this issue and we need to do something. That's one message. If those 10 patients call and tell them we're having this problem and it's 10 patients that elected them or could elect them, then it carries a different weight. Uh, and so on one hand, it's educating patients on how they can advocate while also advocating ourselves. Um, like I had said, joining together with your state association, getting involved, uh, there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, here in New Jersey, we have our state association. I know there's in virtually every state, state associations. And for the most part, a lot of the politics that affect us is local. It's gonna be state legislatures. Uh, and your state association, whether it's the AOA association or a specialty association, is going to be in the best position to really advocate for what you need in that state with those laws, because the AOA is covering the whole nation. 
they're not going to necessarily know all the nuances about that one state. And so having those associations, getting involved, participating, uh, and if all else fails, contributing. You know, I, I know that there's no shortage of people with their handout. Uh, I know it's been, for me with my campaign, the most uncomfortable part of running. <laughs> so it's hard. But I will say that having those conversations as associations and organizations, sometimes it takes buying a ticket to get to a dinner, to have a face-to-face, -to, -face, to really get that message heard. And as much as I wish that was not the case, uh, I, I have found that that is consistently uh, the way that we're able to access the people where, who hold the levers of power. Uh, and unfortunately, those people have, have some costs for us to be able to get there. There's also costs for us to hire professional staff and people that can help lubricate this and fill in those gaps of knowledge that I have. And I think physicians in general have of how does this work? Who do I talk to? Um, we have a phenomenal uh, legislative rep here who will tell me, well, you know what? Yeah, we want to make sure that there's no scope creep, but this representative's daughter is a nurse. So don't bring that up. <laughs> so it can be invaluable having those people who have those relationships being that in between. Um, and, and your associations is going to be a phenomenal way for you to do that, especially if you feel like you have some limited time. Uh, or or just a limited familiarity of how do I do this and how do I get started? Uh, because there is is definitely no shortage of work to be done, but everybody who contributes is really helping move the profession and forward and, and help advance the care that our patients can receive. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to talk to us and, and the listeners of, uh, of the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Torres. Thank you so very much. And hopefully I will see all of you uh, at a conference soon. Excellent. Thank you to all our listeners. Stay tuned for the next episode of ACOPVO.FM Advocacy Podcast. The ACOP Advocacy Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org.